To my life be like a podcast where I speak to different people across the spectrum of roles and responsibilities, jobs and positions. I'm very excited to be back. It has been a while with the last episode where we talked to Nav after a little bit of a break, um, and now wanting to make sure that we consistently talk to new people with new roles and continue to help um, educate the people out there about what some of the maybe not as mainstream uh, positions are that people are in. Um, as always, before I get into this, I just want to say thank you to everybody who's been listening. Very much appreciate the continued support. So on this episode, I would like to, for I think the first time uh, since I've been doing this podcast, uh, welcome in a colleague, actually, somebody who I currently work with, um, and so have her talk about what she's doing. So I'd like to welcome Liz Ewan to My Life Be Like. Liz, welcome to the program. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for uh, volunteering (laughs) to tell everybody what you've got going on. So um, Liz, let's start with a little bit of a background, who you are, uh, personally, where you live, uh, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, and we'll jump right in. Sounds good. So, um, yep, my name is Liz. I live in Connecticut. I recently moved here from Boston, Massachusetts, where I had lived for 18 years. So I uh, was in Boston for 18 years, went to the University of Connecticut, so had lived in Connecticut for four years prior to that. I am married with two kids, two dogs, and a cat (laughs) that all keep me very busy. Um, I am a PhD scientist with a focus in genetics and molecular biology, and I work with Shash at Semaphore, and I am a medical science liaison. Love it. All right. So I think that's probably the end of the episode. What else we, got? <laughs> we don't have anything else to talk about. Um, so I'd like to start with a conversation about when you were in middle school let's say this, right? Yep. What did you want to be when you grew up? I might be one of the rare people that you talked to that was interested in genetics in middle school. (laughs) And um, I have a couple of stories that I um, kind of fed the the interest Mm. in that age frame. So uh, I was a very avid reader from an early age. And one of my favorite activities my mom would drop me and my best friend off at the library for a Saturday afternoon. And we would spend the entire day at the library, reading, finding books, buying books. And one of the uh, random books that I had purchased at a library book sale was a book written by Frank DeFord, who is an NPR sports commentator about his daughter who died of cystic fibrosis. So I read this book in sixth grade and became very interested in genetic diseases and wanted to um, be in the medical field trying to find cures for such diseases because I was very moved by the book and it really impacted my outlook on life. Um, 
<laughs> yes. Mm. Additionally, um, we were also learning about the Punnett Square in sixth grade. Mm. So blonde hair, blue eyes, brown hair, brown eyes. Yep. And I went to my sixth grade teacher with my Punnett Square and I said, can we help? Can you help me figure out my family? Because I have brown hair and brown eyes. My sister has blonde hair and blue eyes. And my brother has red hair and green eyes. And my sixth grade teacher very appropriately looked at me and said, no, I cannot help you figure that out. <laughs> Lots of jokes about the mailman and things like that. <laughs> Thankfully, Ouch. We, we all, Ouch. Um, yeah. <laughs> we all resemble each other in other ways, um, despite coloring. But yeah. um, uh, those were the, the initial interests in about sixth grade that I remember. Uh, in Hold on. That's crazy. First, let's just talk about in sixth grade before you get to seventh grade. <laughs> yes. You're probably 11. Yep. Right? Yep. In sixth yep. grade. Yes. And your idea of a good time was that you got dropped off at the library to read books <laughs> on Saturday afternoon. <laughs> Admittedly, there was an ice cream store next yes. to the library. All right. It makes that story significantly more understandable. <laughs> yes. Um, which is incredible. And literally a book. Change yes. your life at 11 years old. It did. Yes. That's incredible. Yep. Um, so I, I mean, we don't get a lot of that on this podcast. We don't get a lot of people who at that age are impressionable enough where something can make that long lasting of an impression on them. Yes. Um, yep. Previously, we've talked to uh, one of my closest friends, Allison Edwards, who is a veterinarian. Mm-hmm. who knew she wanted to be a vet at an early age. And then that was the trajectory she stayed on. And she's a veterinarian today. And uh, I love that. And yep. so in a similar vein, I love the idea, Liz, that at 11, <laughs> no, literally, like literally, like this is yep. so incredible to say, because most of us have paths that are all over the place. Yep. For you to have had something like that, where the story about a, a child with CF who passes away and then an activity in school where you've got basically capital B's and lowercase B's, <laughs> yep. you know, you got to figure out 25%, 50%, 20, like that kind of stuff. Most people go through that in sixth grade and think, all right, my homework's done. Cool. <laughs> exactly. Right. And for <laughs> yep. you to be somebody, then go to your teacher and say, this has sparked an interest is so incredible. And I want to make sure we highlight how great that is. Because yes. clearly, without those two things happening, who knows where you would be. It's true. Yep. And there have been some deviations along the way, which of we'll course. probably review. But th- that was the initial interest. Amazing. And it's, yep. Amazing. Okay. Seventh grade. Seventh grade. Um, I had to do a science project about... I don't know if I was restricted on topic, but I remember mm-hmm. that I was able to choose pretty much any topic that I wanted. And I chose in vitro fertilization. Oh my God. So, um, so Louise Brown. Time out, time out, time out, time out. Before we get to Louise Brown, uh, who I can't even believe I'm saying this. I've met, by the way. Really? Impressive. That's amazing. Well, yeah, because I worked in the space and, you know, and she does her book tours and whatever. Uh, In seventh grade, people don't understand how actual children, you know, like the natural process, no, actual children. Yes. What the natural process of uh, procreation is. Mm-hmm. And you're writing reports and doing projects on how to artificially create children. Correct. Oh and if goodness. any of my classmates were unsure before, 
I oh. I brought in a cake pan. No, no. Filled, I did mm-hmm. with water, a hard boiled egg, and bean sprouts <laughs> as the visual aid to my seventh grade oh, presentation I I, on well, the future of fertilization. Okay, what year was this? I have to ask. Nineteen ninety. My goodness, that yes. is incredible. <laughs> yes. That is, um, I, Liz, the stuff I'm learning about you today is just <laughs> mind-blowing. Phenomenal. Um, how did you do on that project? Do you remember? Did you get it? I think I did pretty well. Yes. Yeah, I would hope. Yeah. I would hope. The fa- and you, people have a hard time spelling in vitro fertilization <laughs> yeah. seventh grade. <laughs> you yeah. did a whole project on it. <laughs> yeah. um, f- fantastic. fantastic. <laughs> yes. uh, how did you know about that? It, like, I feel like I didn't learn about it until... I was in my 20s thinking about IVF primarily primarily because, uh, yep. as most people know, Divya has a genetic counselor and she works in that space. And then I worked in that space for a few years before I came here. Yeah, I don't actually remember how I learned about it, but I do remember feeling a connection because Louise was, Brown was born the year I was born. So that was the connection to yep. in vitro fertilization. Got it. And I thought the technology was fascinating. So... And, and just so the listeners know, Louise is the first woman born or first, first child, hu- baby yeah, born, right? Human born through in vitro fertilization. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Amazing. Yes. All right. So that's now at your 12 yes. uh, or 13 um, yep. years mm-hmm. old. Yes. So, did, that, did that just spark the scientific interest? Was it just like there now all the time? No, no, nope. Um, Standard, you know, went through all of the different things. I think I had chemistry in ninth grade and I was mm-hmm. not a fan. Mm. Um, Me too. Yep. <laughs> I did enjoy biology. We did a lot of dissection in biology. And I remember being the brave person who was willing to do all of the dissection while mm. friends would take notes. Mm. So frogs um, and pigs and what frogs, would you, yeah. Uh, frogs, I, cow eyeball. Um, I think the pig was later. Yeah, sure. Um, worm, which was yeah, very simple. Whatever. Um, yeah. I think, and yeah, I think it was pretty minimal in tenth grade. But my high school was also able to. I was able to have an elective for twelfth grade, mm-hmm. where um, anatomy and physiology. So mm. I was able to do a fetal pig, a cat, um, and we even got to go to a local university and go into the cadaver lab. Where did you go to school? In Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Okay. Yep. So that was another one of those things that did help. I found that for me, learning biology was very, um, it was very easy for me because if you thought about a mutation in a gene something stopped happening and then you could see the effects of that gene downstream. Mm -hmm. So I really liked that. And I actually did well in physics, I think for similar reasons, because it seemed very logical and not necessarily visual, but you could see the path or imagine the path from one effect or one Mm -hmm. cause to the effect. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so I did enjoy that style of learning and I really liked being hands-on learner, but I wouldn't say that I excelled in, in everything, sure. but this was where my interest really was. And this was where I did very well. Mm. And so I knew that I wanted to be in science. Sure. I didn't necessarily know when I was a senior, if I wanted to do 
genetics or I was very into physical therapy. So that was a big uh, uh, job that people wanted to do in that time. So I volunteered at a physical therapy clinic when I was a senior in high school. And I realized that patient care was likely not going to be my strong suit because I fainted almost oh. every time we had to, it was very minor. There was no blood, there was no guts, but putting people in pain or making them uncomfortable to test their range of motion after an accident or surgery mm. was very uncomfortable for me. So I was a little too empathetic to do physical therapy, but I was already in the process of applying to colleges. So I was specifically looking at colleges that excelled in both physical therapy and genetics. Those were my considerations. Okay. So I landed on the University of Connecticut mm-hmm. and I very grateful that I did. I think it was an amazing place. I started out pre-physical therapy. I think like most um, people, even though I was not sure that that was going to be the field for me because of my... Sure. Uh, tendency to faint during yeah. <laughs> the procedures. Um, That's one I of those. Still... It's one of those prerequisites, Liz, that you don't think about. Like, oh, you you got to stay upright. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we don't need the staff. Sure. To be, of course. Have causing problems. <laughs> totally. And they and they need your own PT once you fall exactly. down. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So um, so I entered in still on the pre physical therapy track. So doing all of the yeah. weed out classes. So right. the the chemistry, the biology, and all of those. The, one, the one-on-ones. Exactly. Yeah. And I did find myself very overwhelmed by the large sizes of the classrooms and the impersonal teaching yeah. meth- methods yeah. because the classes were 500 kids right. at a time. Yeah. UConn, and, UConn's its own city. Really. Exactly. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So um, I wasn't enjoying the pre-physical therapy track and that Mm. combined with the fainting, I was pretty sure I was going to go into more of the lab research path. Did the fainting continue in in college? Was that like a continuous, not every day, obviously, but was it a regular thing for you where you were trying to have? (laughs) No. So um, I think the last time I fainted was actually giving blood. Uh, So it's, but I have learned what I need to do when I give blood so that I don't faint. And still to this day, it's something that I do every eight weeks. And That's great. yeah, so I, ha- I don't faint very often anymore. Mm. Uh, but I do recognize the triggers of what will make me faint and I avoid those. Fantastic. So, yes. Uh, so I realized that I can work with other people's blood and I, as long as I'm dissociated from pain and emotion from a patient side of things, then I'm, I'm good. Sure. So halfway through, let's say probably sometime during your sophomore year, I would assume you started to make the decision about genetics being the focus. Yes. So let me ask this question then, given the fact that pre-PT track, when you talk to people about it, Mm -hmm. you sort of know where you're going, right? Because so many people enter college with this uncertainty about what's going to happen post, Mm -hmm. at least when you're thinking physical therapy, you know that there are PT roles out there. You just have to decide what you want to do. Exactly. When you then change your mind to genetics, is it a hard sell to your parents or your family or other people to say, hey, I don't know what genetics is going to lead me to, but I can't do physical therapy. Let's go to genetics. 
No, surprisingly, my parents were always very supportive. I think they were very surprised mm. by my interest in science and especially lab science. They could not imagine me in a lab coat pipetting. They said, based on my personality, this was the least possible yeah, sure. matching profession that they thought I would choose. Yeah. So you don't, you don't talk to many people when you're, when you're busy with, with your head under a hood. This is correct. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So, um, so it wasn't a hard sell. They were very supportive, but they didn't understand it. Mm. So. Well, that's uh, good. At least they didn't put up roadblocks. No, no, not at all. Yep. As long yeah. as I was doing well in school and happy and I had a, a track that I was moving towards, they were open to supporting me in that. Fantastic. Yep. Fantastic. Yes. Did, did things get better then uh, for did. you in college? They once did. You so, right. So the UConn program for genetics was a much smaller program. You actually had to apply and get into it. And the professors in this program were like our mothers away from mm. home. Mm -hmm. They really cared about the students in the program. They had very high expectations of us, did not give us the easy way out, but were kind and warm and encouraging through that entire process. Yeah. That's great. Did yeah. you, did you bring back the Punnett square to them and say, Hey, can you help me figure out? <laughs> I actually didn't. <laughs> I probably should at some point. You don't have to, you should be able to do it yourself. I should do it myself at this point now. Right. <laughs> exactly. I would hope so. <laughs> that would have been, a, that would have been a good story if you're on your first day. You're like this, is, I, I wanted to learn this when I was 11. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> Here I am at 22 trying to figure it out. Still. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, that's great. So you finished up at UConn with a uh, bachelor's of science in genetics. Yes, that correct. That's correct. Okay. Yep. So you're 21, 22. You've got a BS yep. in genetics. Yep. Is master's the next step? Is it? Yeah. I have so, to do PhD. So interestingly at UConn, they, um, and this program specifically, highly recommend a co-op semester. Mm -hmm. So going into a lab and working for credit instead of doing your, one of your senior year semesters. So I actually went to the Columbia Presbyterian Hospital and worked okay. for six months at their cytogenetics lab for yeah. my last semester of school. Is that in Manhattan? In Manhattan. Yep. Nice. Okay. Yep. And while I was there, I got to put all of the things that I was learning in class and in our classroom lab into actual experience, working with real patient samples and seeing all of the different types of professionals that work and support a lab. Sure. So part of the fact that I was, I went to New York city, basically by myself. I didn't have any classmates. I didn't have any parents or anything. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And so my mentor at that time was, um, Dr. Dorothy Warburton. She ran the cytogenetics, cytogenetics lab at Columbia. Mm -hmm. And I reached out to her for extra projects or things that I could do beyond just, um, helping out in the lab. Yeah. So she, um, partnered me with one of her PhD students. So I was able to help this PhD student with an aspect of her research that ended up becoming a paper. And, um, and I was able to meet postdoctoral students and PhD students 
technicians in the lab and Dorothy herself was the director. So I got to see at that point, the full range of a, a genetics lab professional and the different degrees that you might need. Right. So I didn't want to go to grad school right away. I knew mm -hmm. that I wanted to work. Mm -hmm. At the time, I was going to either stay in Manhattan or I was going to move to Boston. Mm -hmm. And my best friend at the time said she was going to get a job in Boston. So I applied to a few jobs. You're we going to be roommates. And we both applied to different jobs at the Brigham Women's Hospital. Sure. And I applied to um, the same positions at the Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. And it just so happened I heard back from the Boston job first. And I, it was also a, a different job that I didn't even know existed when mm -hmm. I applied for it. Mm -hmm. So this, I thought at the time, my only options were really to apply as a research technician or a clinical lab technologist. Yeah. So, um, and there's, there was a big pay difference between the two. So I did apply to both and I, um, I don't remember how many different jobs at the time that I applied to, but I do remember I was in the lab at Columbia when I got a call from my future boss, Cynthia Morton. And she said, I would like you to come interview for this position that I'm just starting up. It is a cytogenetic technologist for the research core facility. So I was doing cytogenetic samples on research samples. So I was karyotyping dogs and monkeys and doing um, fish studies. So fluorescent in situ hybridization, making the probes and testing them on all different other kinds of species. And there I worked even more with postdocs and grad students and directors, PIs. And um, I didn't necessarily look back. I didn't think that I I didn't miss out on the New York experience, sure. even though I, I do love New York and I do wish I had spent more than six months living in, in Manhattan. Yeah. yeah. Um, were you looking for something specific in the positions that you were looking for or was it just, I need real world experience. Yeah. I don't want to go to grad school yet. The latter. So I needed real world experience. I needed to make some money and, learn different techniques and figure out what I wanted to go to grad school for. Mm -hmm. And industry was less of a conversation at that time. And I knew that if I was going to be a professor, I would need to really have a focused interest on what I wanted to do and study. Okay. So, so, so academics was the academics the was the roots. Exactly. Okay. So did I want to be a lab director? Did I want to be a professor who focused on teaching? what were the, because those were, I think, really the two ideas that I had at the time of what you could do with a genetics degree. Yeah, sure. Uh, what made you think that teaching was where you wanted to go? Where did that come up along? So the way? I will, so my mother, my sister, my grandmother, they are all teachers. So I come from a long line of teachers mm. and I think it's, it is very important. I think um, if you truly understand your fields, you can be a great teacher. Sure. Of course. Yep. There's also nothing better than that, right? Helping other exactly. people understand yes. Uh, yes. what it is that you've got going on. Yep. So you get to Boston. You move there with you move there with your best friend. Yep. Uh, 
what could be better, right? Exactly. You're living in your early 20s, yep. early mid 20s. You've got a job, which is great at yep. a, uh, a well-known institution, Correct. not just locally, but around the, around the country, if not around the world. Yes. In an extremely compact city of hospitals and medicine, because <laughs> yes. if people don't know, I mean, every other corner basically in Boston is owned by a different hospital or academic yes. institution with medical backgrounds. Um, was it the thought like there is a time frame on this? Was there an expiration date of how long you wanted to do that and say, I'm going to give this a year and then go apply? Or was it like, eh, if I get to grad school, fine. If not, I'm okay. Yep. I didn't have a clear thought process in mind but one of the nice things about Boston as a, a recent a very heavily student city it's very yes. lots of students and lots of recent graduates sure so in my lab there were I think eight of us in the same time frame we all started um after undergrad and all eight of us were probably doing different things in the aspect of the clinical cytogenetics lab, um, the research lab, all under the same boss, so Cynthia Morton. So um, I think I was heavily motivated by also their paths as well. Mm. And a lot of them were going to med school. Yeah. Uh, some were going to for grad school, some masters. So this was a stopping point for a number of us at the same phase. In life. Yeah, which probably makes it a lot easier than you can bounce ideas off of people. On exactly. And learn from forward. other experiences right. and their knowledge and exposure yeah. as well. Um, what not to do. So mm -hmm. how long did you stay there before you thought, all right, I'm ready to go back to school? So I, I worked for three years before I went back to grad school. So about oh. the two, two year mark, I okay. was ready and started applying and what did you want to do? Was it a master's first or? Nope. So I just applied straight. for a PhD program okay. because I knew that I didn't have to pay for school if I got my mm. PhD, that I would get a stipend. And that was a big selling point because I wanted to not have to take out significant amount of loans. Sure. For the five or six years that you'd have to go to school, right? For your yep. PhD. Exactly. Uh, where did you apply? Did you want to stay in Boston or was it wide yep. open to you? So I did apply to a number of places in Boston. I applied to a, place, a few places in Philadelphia, which is near where I grew up, mm -hmm. and also Yukon okay. and also Manhattan. So, of course, I was um, soon to be engaged at this point. All in my, right husband had a job in Boston. Mm -hmm. So when it came down to having the acceptances come in and I had to consider him as well. Of course. So, of course. Um, yep. So I decided to stay at Boston university. I got a, um, a great, um, scholarship where I didn't have to teach for the first two years. Um, it was like a training grant type of a thing that, um, they only gave to select students. Sure. So that was also a great selling point because I wanted to be able to focus on understanding the role that I was expected to do and not have to teach right away. Yeah. But it was also important for me to choose a graduate school that did prioritize teaching because at that time I did think that I wanted to teach. 
Sure. Uh, which would have helped, of course, then set you up if academics is where you wanted to Correct. end up. Exactly. Um, so Boston University. Yes. How long does it take to get a PhD in whatever it is you wanted to get a PhD? <laughs> so I selected a mouse model lab okay. um, looking at heart disease and heart development. Mm -hmm. And working with mice is a much slower process than picking a genetics lab that works on flies or worms or cell lines. Sure. So I took some very good advice when I was deciding what lab to choose for my graduate studies and decided to leave the clinical genetics world and just learn a lot about molecular biology, the mm. basic techniques, transcription factors, translation, all of the different things, protein assays, RNA assays, just learn about biology. And then I can always come back to genetics. Mm -hmm. So I picked a lab that was what, which I thought would be able to give me that experience. So we were studying a family of transcription factors in mice. So these are uh, proteins that regulate how genes are expressed. So um, in the heart, you know, you have a different kind of muscle than your skeletal muscle. So these genes are differentially regulated in hearts and skeletal muscle, but they are muscle specific. So it was part of my project to uh, create a mouse model that had two of the genes swapped out for each other. And nowadays this is actually much easier with CRISPR technology, um, but I spent the first maybe three or four years working on this mouse model, did finally get a mouse that had the genetic mutation that I wanted it to have. And the mouse never had the right color babies. So I had to abandon that project about four years into grad four school. Four years. Most people would have done this for four days and thought, <laughs> eh, it's not working for me. Yep. <laughs> so I'm nothing goodness. if not persistent. <laughs> you did four years of a project and then abandoned it because it didn't provide the results. Yes. That, not like you yep. did that, but that was yep. the situation that you were in. Correct. That's incredible. <laughs> yes. That's yep. like really incredible. People, I mean, four years, if you think about, that's your entire high school career, your entire, for most people, college career. Correct. And you're just like, eh, I didn't get anything out of it. Let's do it again. Yep. <laughs> wow. That's yes. amazing, Liz. Amazing. Yes. That's, yep. Yeah, it's part of the PhD process. I think a sure. lot of failure, a lot of being able to, research different things that might help you get the answer better or yeah. more successfully. Yeah. What yeah. made you stick with it though? Like really? Um, grad school was a really, really great time. Okay. It's just a lot of intellectual stimulation. There's a lot of people working towards the goal of the naive goal of just, you know, making the world a better place, learning yeah. more. Sure. Um, not I making any money, which is not making any money. Yeah. We're all poor in the same boat together. Um, it, yeah, it was some of the greatest years. That's great. Yep. And I had a supportive advisor. I had great friends in the program. Mm. And I also, you know, I buffered a lot of the disappointment of the academic and the, um, the experimental disappointments with making the graduate program a, a better place too. my 
my two of my good friends and I, we started the Women in Biology Club. So we would invite women in biology from the area to come and talk to the grad students about their role. Um, alumni who had graduated from the program. Um, I worked on trying to get a paternity leave for grad students and postdocs at BU. That's awesome. Yep. So there was a lot of that going on as well. Sure. And then, of course, I mean, your relationship, right? I assume you got married in that time frame as well, which is great. Um, And that probably helps, right? It's not just you toiling along every day in the lab, trying to figure it out nine to nine and then leaving and thinking, yeah, I'm going to just be back here and every day, Saturdays and Sundays included. Yep. Um, So let's fast forward a little bit, right? Yep. Uh, You, what was your dissertation? What was the final, like, I'm finally about to leave grad school. This is my... Yes. Uh, submission to the world. Um, the title of my dissertation? Yes, because <laughs> I would. I really want to know. <laughs> MEF2A regulates a Costamere gene program in the mouse heart. Okay. <laughs> uh, the fact that I know that off the top of my head is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I would think. I would think it probably took you a, another four years just to figure out the title of your yes. dissertation and how to spell all that stuff, um, which is awesome. Uh, can you summarize it in a couple a couple sentences? Yep. So of the of the, the family of four genes that I worked on, it was MEF2A, MEF2B, MEF2C, MEF2D. Mm-hmm. So um, I focused then the rest of my interest on MEF2A, and so if I couldn't swap out the MEF2A gene for the MEF2C and then study the effect of that. I was just going to focus on what does MEF2A do to control um, the heart muscle development? Because when mice don't have the MEF2A gene, they, half of them die um, at the right after birth. And then some of them live. So there's this very weird thing. So penetrance. So this genetic term that, um, people with the same mutation have different manifestations of disease. So we were seeing this in mice as well. So understanding more about what this gene did specifically in the mouse heart. So understanding what other proteins this gene worked or this protein product worked with and how. So I did a bunch of different, more in vitro type of experiments Mm. where I could take out this gene in certain cells. I got to work with stem cells and um, make them transition into cardiac cells. Um, I did have to work a lot with neonatal mice and rats. And so there was a lot of killing of them and I really did not enjoy that. So moving on past my PhD, I knew that I wanted to move away from working with mice. Sure. Um, My aunt runs of mice. Um, the colony. She had a lab at Sinai and then transferred out to work in California. And just the idea of like what you're trying to do, right? Just yeah. amazing yeah. how that happens. Um, so now you are a PhD. You're yes. a doc, right? Correct. You're like the world is at your fingertips. <laughs> yes. What do you want to do next? Now that you've accomplished. Yes. After, so first of all, how many years did it take from the day you started your PhD to when you seven years and one month to my dissertation? Incredible. <laughs> Just incredible. Uh, congratulations. In Thank case you. I haven't told you that. No, you're no problem. So seven years later, you look up and you're like, man, I can finally see the sun outside. Yes. 
do you have a thought about what you want to do next? Is it academics next? Is it, I need to go make money now. I'm want to have yep. a family. Let me take a break and go on vacation. What do you want? To yeah. Do? So another interesting side note to things that I did during grad school beyond just the research is I participated in research studies quite a bit, <laughs> make a little extra cash, help progress yeah. science. No surprise. No surprise there. Yeah. So I was in a study for two years towards the end of my, the last two years of grad school. And this was the first human study of the effects of calorie restriction on aging. Interesting. Yes. So uh, this was at Tufts. And so this was through the National Institute of Aging, so the NIA. And this was a three-site study. So Tufts, the University of Washington, St. Louis, and Tulane were the three sites that had human participants in the study. And um, so I had to eat um, a calorie restricted diet for two years. And every six months I would get uh, muscle biopsies, fat biopsies, DEXA scans, all different things. And they would monitor us for different signs of improvement on aging markers. Okay. So I was very interested in the science of aging. And this was also when the, um, all the news on resveratrol was coming out and um, different benefits of aging drugs. And um, I think David Sinclair had made the company that would make the pills for resveratrol. And, um, and so I was fascinated and thought that I wanted to go into aging if I was going to stay in academia. Okay. So I was also looking for jobs because I also knew that I wanted to have kids and right. I didn't want to be very poor and I wanted right. to be able to afford daycare and continue working. Yes, <laughs> for <laughs> sure. All of the above. Definitely. Yes. So uh, I have, staying in Boston. Mostly? Yes. I wanted to stay in Boston at that time. Okay. So I applied widely. I applied to everything I could find job or postdoc in the aging fields. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, I was left with um, an offer for a job and an offer for a postdoc. And the postdoc offer was a mouse lab looking at the effects of when a mouse mother was calorie restricted during pregnancy, the offspring had an increased risk of diabetes, of developing diabetes. Interesting. Okay. So this is at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center. Sure. And um, I was, I really liked the project. I liked the, I, it was interesting to me, but I really didn't want to work with mice again. No way. And, Not after seven years, it's just been <laughs> going through that already. No way. <laughs> exactly. And I did have a good job offer that actually brought me back to the clinical genetics space. Mm. So it was um, working for a company making diagnostic fish probes, and they focused on a panel um, that made the bladder cancer test. So this was, is probably the most popular fish test for cancer. Um, Abbott makes the um, FDA certified one, um, and my company made a competing version of that. So I decided to take the job instead of the postdoc and make more money so that I could afford yes. daycare. Yes. <laughs> yep. and, and, and rent. In, in, and rent, exactly. Yeah. All of these things. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I started with this job and it was very much a startup environment. There were two staff scientists, four, five, 
technologists who kind of ran the production side of things and one director and the owner. Interesting. And your role would have been or was yeah. in the lab, right? So yeah, it was a staff scientist. And it, okay. so I helped on a lot of the design for future work. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I did help with the production of the product that we sold, but for the most part, I worked on development of new projects and submitting to the FDA for um, 510k submissions and kind of investigating and forming relationships with hospitals so that we could advance this work. Sure. How did you get from staff scientist at this mm -hmm. uh, company to where we are today? <laughs> so Does that transition happen? Yeah. So I was a staff scientist for, or our, I guess I was technically an R&D staff scientist at mm -hmm. um, this company for two and a half years. And I was looking for a bit more um, learning. I had felt like I kind of learned what I could do and how much I could help. Um, the head scientist at this company um, kind of called most of the shots. It was mostly what he wanted to do in his direction. And I felt like I helped as much as I could and, and yeah. we parted on good ways and I started looking for other jobs. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to stay in genetics. Mm -hmm. I knew, you know, I had the clinical experience and again, just sent forth a number of resumes and applications to a variety of different types of places. Sure. Looking, I, did, I knew that I didn't really want to work at a pharmaceutical company. Yeah. I wanted to work more at a technology company. Interesting. And I... I applied to a number of places and got contacted by a startup company based in Belgium. And this was a sequencing company. And interestingly, uh, Cynthia Morton, my first mentor, my, fir the, my boss in my first job, when I took the fish job, she gave me the advice. She said, well, fish is dying out. So yeah. there's no growth in fish. Yeah. Sequencing, Nobody's using it anymore. Yeah. No one's using it. Or they're like, they're using it, but there's no like new advances mm -hmm. in fish. Mm -hmm. So the future is NGS. Mm -hmm. So I had always kept that in my mind uh, that that was something that she had said. And this company that contacted me was doing um, NGS data interpretation. And I hadn't learned about NGS since undergrad or grad school classes. So I had a lot of learning to do before I even interviewed for this position. Right just to kind of even stand on two feet yep. to answer questions about yep. how I could help. Yep. So this job that I did end up getting was a field application scientist and the company was called Cartagena. They were two years later acquired by Agilent. And this is kind of, I was there for eight years at that, wow. in that role. Yep. As a field application scientist. Scientist. Yeah. So in the field application scientist role in for a company doing NGS, which stands for next generation sequencing, are you out there going to help uh, clients of theirs, like understand Correct. how their technology works yes. and how it benefits their company? Exactly. So um, on the data interpretation side, so there's lots of different steps of the NGS process. Mm. So there's the DNA extraction 
and the library prep. So making the DNA ready for sequencing. There's the actual sequencing process. And then there's the interpretation. So after you do the sequencing, there's all of the analysis that has to happen after. You have to take these 25 length nucleotides, you know, A's, G's, C's, and T's, yep. line them up to the genome, and then figure out, is this the reference allele? So is this the right thing at the right place? Or is this an alternative? And then make sense downstream from that, does this then, could this ultimately cause disease or um, cause a problem in our patients? Sure. So I specifically supported the labs in mm -hmm. using this type of software. So the mm -hmm. data analysis software, um, getting the, what we call variants. So the mutations that are in a, a specific patient and then finding that needle in the haystack. So the one or two DNA mutations that cause something or are important based on the 30,000, 10,000, thousand that might be in the sample yeah. normally. Sure. Uh, eight years is a long time to do it that. It is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I would assume you learned a lot, but then it starts to having some understanding of that position, having worked with people in your, in a similar yes. role at previous companies starts to get mundane and monotonous, That's, right? Because yes. you're just having the same conversation about data applications over and over, and over yep. again. It's true. And the so customers I, were what kept it exciting. And as you're developing the software, the more problems the customers are going to have, which is not good for a product, but is very good for a field application yeah, scientist because keeps yeah, it exactly yeah. keeps it interesting. Sure. And one of the things I really like doing is talking to people and mm. understanding their needs and their problems. And even if our software can't do exactly what they want to do, trying to find a workaround that could make it work and get them to the answer that they need. Sure. Was that, so after about eight years, was it then at that point, it was like, all right, it's time for something else or yeah, did that position, did that position uh, dissolve on its own? No, no. So I wanted to do something else and I was very attached to the software itself mm -hmm. and, um, and the customers that I helped support over all of the years. Sure. Um, I really believed in the product and felt that, that Agilent had the best product on the market. And I, decided that I wanted to advance within the company into different roles and grow tangentially kind of with being able to still support the software, but grow professionally into some newer positions. Mm -hmm. So I applied to two different marketing positions within Agilent that ultimately would be in charge of the software. And I figured I knew the market, I understood the NGS customers, and I understood the company and um, went through the application process and they gave the roles to two different other people. So I probably could have moved around a little bit more, mm -hmm. changed out of um, that role, but I knew that it would probably be hard for me to move into an entirely different department while maintaining a lot of the institutional knowledge about this product. Sure. So I would probably still be tapped for a lot of that Same job. Type of stuff, Same, yeah. Exactly. So um, some of four had actually been my customer for seven of the eight years that, Amazing. Yep, that I worked there. 
And I formed some great relationships with the lab staff at Semaphore. And so when I started looking outside of Agilent, I reached out to my contacts at Semaphore, ran a couple job positions that I had found by them. And I found the MSL position, which was a very good fit given that it is a very similar role Mm. in terms of the communication, the problem solving, um, but a whole different application of it. Yeah. So you get to your current position which yes. is medical science liaison. Yes. So I'm going to obviously talk to you as somebody who doesn't know yep. what it is that you do mm-hmm. um, or what a medical science liaison is. So yes. uh, we talked about how you found the role, uh, what the title is, medical science liaison. So realistically in your day-to-day, Liz, primarily because your position is remote, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, what does the day-to-day look like for a medical science liaison? So the day-to-day is a lot of meetings, a lot of conversations internally and also with customers. Um, I'll say that my specific medical science liaison job is not the norm. Um, I would just as an explanation, generally medical science liaison teams do support the sales teams at clinical lab, reference lab type companies, and they are the clinical expert when talking to a sales prospect or a customer as to, um, we have patients with these diseases, what genes should we test? We um, want to make sure that we're thinking, future thinking and not limiting ourselves to this. So the MSL is going to come in and be able to tackle a lot of those clinical questions and answer the technical things that the sales team doesn't necessarily have all of that expertise on. So in that sense, the the FAS and the MSL roles are very similar where we're it's sales driven and Mm -hmm. new customer communication. Um, So in that sense, answering emails, answering questions, I'm not getting as many, can you reset my password? But, you know, do we offer, this, the same question I would say that counter offers, can you reset my password, is the, do we offer this gene on these panels right. is the more often, um, sure. most often question emailed. Um, so um, I will say there is going to be some more now that some of the restrictions have lifted, more customer facing meetings with um, existing customers, future customers to make sure that we have a clinical, clinically knowledgeable person at the table when having these sales discussions. Right. Um, so it's, let's say it takes, let's say that took a couple of minutes to explain, right? <laughs> I uh, work with you yes. regularly. So I have a sense of exactly what that means. How do you tell that to the non-science people who are like, what does the medical science liaison do? Because so, you can't explain that. It's analogous to an FAS in certain ways, <laughs> but like, how does that ex- how does that get explained to then sort of layman yeah. who doesn't understand the lab? Yes. So I do have to explain a lot and it's not very fast. I don't have a 30 second elevator pitch mm. for my job. So what I do first usually is explain genetic testing. So yeah. most people have heard of 23andMe or ancestry.com. Sure. So I say, you know, where P53 
people will send their DNA samples to find out ancestry or fun things like, you know, do you like cilantro? Yeah. Um, doctors and physicians will sometimes need to do this for cancer or for babies that are born with congenital defects. And I support either the company that's doing the testing or the company that's running the software. So mm. for this job, my company does this genetic testing and we want to be more than just a genetic testing company. So my job specifically is working with whole hospital systems, not just individual labs to see how Semaphore can partner to make more useful informative decisions and clinical understanding out of all of the patients that they have in the hospital, not just at an individual lab. That's great. The next time somebody asks me what I do, Liz, I'm going to send them to you. You can give them, <laughs> you can help them. You can help them understand, which is great. Um, so seeing as how this is quite different than previous roles that you've had, yes. at least in some regards, yep. what would you say is the best part about being a medical science liaison? So I think I've been very selective about the jobs mm -hmm. and that I choose and not necessarily because of the tasks that I'm asked to do, but because of the people that I work with. Mm. So I'm very selective about the team that I'm working with and the person that I'm working for. Sure. And one of the best things about this job I think, and even beyond when I wasn't working at Semaphore, but working with Semaphore is all of the people that I have interacted with really care about patients mm -hmm. and medical improving patient experiences and mm -hmm. patient health. And all of the people that I've met or the large majority of the people that I've met at Semaphore are really wonderful people who work hard and keep that focus in mind. Sure. So that was really important to me when selecting this job. And I think that working with great people in the company makes me a better employee. Makes sense. And then on the flip side to that, what is the hardest aspect of the position? Yep. Um, the hardest aspect of this position is not knowing how I can help more. Like, it seems like a, a lame answer, but it is one of those things where I am in this very specific role as a clinical support person. And I have visibility on a lot of problems going on at a lot of different other departments and other different sections of either the customer relationship or the customer experience. And there is very little I can do. Mm. So I can communicate problems and I can talk about them, but I don't have a lot of um, immediate ability to yeah. fix any of those problems. Sure. And as somebody who is a doer, yes, right. That yep. must make it that much more difficult for you because you want to act, Yes, but it's difficult to act because you don't have, as you said, the ability to actually in your minds, make any real progress on resolving whatever the problem might be. Right? Exactly. Yep. Interesting. How about, because I think a lot of people, especially these days, care about things like work-life balance. How's work-life yes. balance in a, in a position like this? It's good. I think, though, for myself, um, 
I think this is a job very easily that could not be very good for work-life balance. Mm. I have always been very connected in terms of the job. I have always been in a customer support type of role. So I've always had a work phone that I keep on me. I'm very um, keyed into issues and things as they come up, but I very aggressively protect my work-life balance. Mm. And I think that you have to in any role, in any role they can kind of take in and take, come in and take over. But if you don't protect it, it's, it, then it's yours to lose, I guess. Oh yeah. So (laughs) I have always very vigorously had to protect my work-life balance. And this actually is a great role for that work-life balance because Aside from a few customer facing meetings, I have the ability to schedule meetings that are convenient to kids' doctor's appointments right. or things like that. Right. So a lot of MSLs don't have your level of experience, right? Or your level of education. Yes. How do you think that the PhD experience, as well as then all of the work you've done prior to coming to this role, impact your ability to do? what it is that you're doing? It's a good question. I think, I think I was probably, I would not have applied to an MSL position at any other company because typically an MSL position is a genetic counselor or a nurse. Yeah, sure. And I think that I was hoping more for the Um, what I saw as the similarities between the FAS and the MSL role that I could overcome that initial understanding that MSLs have to be genetic counselors or nurses to be able to do this job well. And I could convince the hiring manager that I would still be a good MSL because I have excellent listening skills and communication Mm -hmm. skills and can manage my time and care about customer support. Um, and honestly, if there's a willingness to learn, I think there is the capacity to do as many different jobs as you have the interest in learning to do. So I think that was what was, I would, how I was able to get this job. And also the fact that Semaphore is doing something unique in the fields where we are not just being a reference lab and Mm -hmm. offering results to patients Mm -hmm. we are trying to do more than that Mm -hmm. and I think that's where my research and um, support experience can then help specifically for this type of role yeah which makes sense because I would agree with you that most MSLs come from a clinical background where they're actual clinicians themselves right they're not uh, people who have lab experience or PhDs and so they can speak to from a clinician to a clinician level to say I understand Correct. what you're saying, because I practiced clinically myself. Exactly. Um, and for you not to have done that, then it makes sense. I think what's interesting before we uh, move on is in the level that you have the same education and background as many of the people that we're talking to, mm-hmm. both internally and externally, yep. puts, you on a, puts you in a place where you can speak from a peer-to-peer level, as opposed to somebody who might be viewed as being, unfortunately, beneath 
right. some of the people that we talk to, right? Because mm-hmm. when you have conversations with people, Liz, it's like, uh, by the way, I have a PhD in molecular biology. <laughs> so whatever you're about to say to potentially make me feel like I don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> consider that first, <laughs> right? Both right. again, internally and externally, where you can hold your own and your experience and your background allow for you to do that without anybody potentially being able to make you feel small or uneducated about something, because inevitably lab directors, clinicians, whomever have exactly the same level of education as you do. And they can't hoard it over, you know, load it over. Yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, I think I'm someone who probably um, doesn't always feel that level of authority just because I have the PhD. Yeah. But I do think that I know that. (laughs) So I think that one of the things about having the PhD and going through this entire experience is there is always more to learn. Hmm. And, and I think that, um, staying curious, asking those questions and feeling confident in directing that conversation is where, that expertise is beneficial for this role. Yeah. And, and being willing to admit when you don't know. Sure. And um, yeah, I think that that is definitely part of it. And I think that coming from a job where I had been the resident expert in mm. a specific field is very easy to talk to someone on a peer to peer level. Um, but I've been in this role for about eight months. Mm-hmm. So I'm still in the learning how the different terminology, the different um, importance, like where are the, the key roadblocks and the, the things that are making people really stressed and angry and, um, and understanding how to respond effectively to those problems. Yep. And I know that it took me a full year in my last job to get to a place to speak confidently. And so I anticipate that in this role, it will probably be similar, maybe a little shorter, just because I've been eight years in the next gen sequencing. Right. Space. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's good. Cause the next time somebody tries to tell you something, I'm going to tell them that you had seven years <laughs> in a mice model lab and I don't want to hear. Yeah, right. so, um, <laughs> and so the last question about this specifically then. Yep. Uh, medical science liaisons don't have a clear trajectory of what happens next, right? It's still very, very much analogous to your whole career so far, right? Like, it's like, Hey, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Do you want to then take on like a team? Do you want to become Mm -hmm. director? Do you have aspirations to do other things? Like, where do you go from here in terms of MSL being, a starting point at this particular organization or any organization, Yep. what would you say would be the next step or the step after that? Yeah. So I got some good um, critical feedback um, it over the course of my job applications and things like that, that um, I was a very tactical person, but mm. not necessarily a very strategic person Okay. Um, when thinking about problems. And I think that comes from the jobs that I've had where I... I'm in situations where I am in, I'm faced with a problem. You have to find the solution and then you move on. 
And I would really like to be able to work on more strategy so that I can learn to expand that tactical expertise into strategy and understand how these large companies are planning for the future and the considerations. And, and I think being open to those kinds of goals will hopefully open up new job options in the sure. future when I feel like I've become the MSL expert and I'm ready to move on. Nice. Um, cool. So then as we, now that we talked about what happens going forward, mm-hmm. right, let's think a little bit about the journey overall. Yep. Uh, you mentioned a couple of these people already. Yep. Who have been some of the most influential people along your journey that you wouldn't be where you are without? Yep. Well, I think primarily my parents, mm-hmm. obviously, just in the beginning, I think um, they've always been very supportive. They both have always encouraged me to go where my heart leads me, which has been great. And also having a role model in my mom, she went back to school when I was in high school. Um, she volunteers, so she's an educator and she also does a lot of advocacy and lobbying for educational benefits in Um, the statewide level and federal level. So she volunteers heavily. She's very active. And so having that role model initially to show you have your job, but then you also have the passion behind the job to do and make it better. Um, So my parents, obviously. And then um, thinking back, I will say that my um, advisor at UConn was one of the most influential people. So her name is Judy Brown and she really encouraged us, pushed us. She was that kind of mother figure at college that like, I mean, her standards were very, very high for all of us. And she really did um, help us as a class move forward. And whenever I see anyone who has graduated from that program, I know that they've had the same experience. They have the same level of attention to their lab technique, their research. They have all of this. And, and I know, and she's been in that program since then. So um, she's definitely one of them. And I'll say I've been very fortunate to have influential people at every single stage and being able to take even small kernels of lesson and information from people watching how they move through different roles and paths have been instrumental in my growth overall. Sure. Um, The company that I was hired to, there was a few different people at that position. So one of the people who hired me, um, he was the director of all of the sales team. And he, um, at first I didn't think I wanted the job because of him. He was a little scary to me at first. He was very aggressive and assertive. Mm -hmm. And, um, I grew to have a really great relationship with him because I knew always where I stood with him and I knew what was expected, what his standards were. And I, I think about that a lot and how can I be honest with people and, vulnerable and um, unemotional where I can like bring out the best in myself and the people that I work with. And so I think about that a lot. I think about the people who started up that company. They were my age and they started this whole company that became such a huge part of a lot of people's lives. There were, I think, 40 people when our company got acquired and there were probably over 
70 at this point still working on this software that they sure. made out of grad school. That's cool. Yeah. As you look back <clears throat> now, would you consider changing anything? Are there steps that you thought, man, if I had gone a different way, like maybe if you didn't go to Boston and you decided to stay in New York, or if you decided to work or have a long distance relationship and look for right. jobs outside of Boston, are there things yeah. that you consider changing in your career or is it at this point? No, no. Too, I, think, I do think sometimes about how my life would be different if I had picked different routes at each of those different big junctures. Mm. Uh, but I wouldn't change any decision that I made. That's great. Yep. How about a pivotal moment? Was there anything specifically in your life or career that you think this is how I got here? I mean, I guess we talked about it a little bit, right? You read the yeah. book in sixth grade <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. and here we are. Was there anything else that really pushed you along? No, I don't think anything's individually pivotal. Um, I just think having along the way an amazing support network of mm. friends and family um, were the reason that I'm able to be where I am today. Sure. And I don't take for granted how fortunate I am and privileged to be where I am. And I hope some of the future, what that holds for me is... Um, a lot of um, outreach and education um, to people who might not even know some of the possibilities of these types of jobs. Right. Uh, is academics still in the question? Is like that an idea, academia? Do you still wanna be Professor Dr. Ewan or? <laughs> I, I do really love the idea of teaching and I have always kind of held a candle for the, maybe I could be an adjunct professor in, as a part-time capacity at some, some stage. Um, I, I don't know. I think um, I was considering it when things were slowing down with COVID, doing maybe some online teaching, uh, individual courses here and there. I have a number of friends that are college professors and they've talked about how difficult it is to gauge teaching efficacy online. And so, oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I have kind of paused at thinking about that. And I, we do have a very amazing network of state colleges and community colleges in the area and in Connecticut overall that I would love to be able to be a part of in some capacity, even if it's teacher education. I feel like that's also a component of the MSL role is education, educating sales, educating mm. the customer um, that I, I am fulfilled and I do feel fulfilled by that enough of that teaching that I don't need to actively look for additional roles, but I do, there will always be a soft spot, I think, for teaching and education, yeah. whatever form that might be. Sure. Well, you can always start with one course at a time, right? You don't need exactly. to go and be a tenured professor somewhere. Correct. Um, as an aside, I can't even imagine being a college professor or teacher at this no, point. Just me like neither. considering yep. what it was like when we were in school yep. and how different it is now. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got people sitting in your classes watching YouTube videos all day long. So, exactly. Yep. Um, incredible. Great. Well, I think. That's a good place to sort of wrap up as we always do. I would love to hear from you, Liz, um, your advice for yourself, right? That 11 year old girl who was going to the library, what's your advice <laughs> to her? 
And then what's your advice to sort of just the general public that listens to this yep. podcast? Um, my general advice to my 11-year-old self is... Especially because you have two kids who are just about that age now too, right? That are yep. about to be in that same yep. range. I'm sure you have similar conversations all the time. So. Yep. Yes, I do. I think, yep. I think it's find and feed your passion. This is really, it's really important to find the thing that gets you up in the morning. Mm-hmm. And, and I've been very fortunate to obviously enjoy the work that I've been doing. And, and I don't think that is necessarily a requirement for someone to have as their job. Like you don't have to find your passion as your nine to five paycheck job, but as long as you have something that keeps you getting up in the morning and drives you to improving yourself, staying curious, asking the questions. That's what I would tell my 11 year old self. And similarly to your audience, stay curious. Don't be afraid to ask people to talk and, and learn more about different roles. I found that um, people are generally open to having a conversation and willing to um, tell you about their story and, and remembering and keeping track of the, the things that you've learned and reminding yourself how far you've come is beneficial to not getting lost along the way and, and appreciating that where you are is because of everything that has happened. So no question, keep, keep keep going. Yeah. Which is exactly what this podcast is all about. Right. So that works perfectly. And if you are somebody who's potentially nervous about uh, having those conversations, you can listen to these episodes and hear about what all these roles are, which is uh, the whole point of why I wanted to do this. So uh, that's tremendous advice, not only for yourself, but everybody else, Liz, I thank you very much. Um, Appreciate you sharing in great detail, uh, everything you've been to. Absolutely. Uh, Looking forward to seeing how this obviously continues as we continue to work together, which is great. Mm -hmm. Um, So with that, we will wrap up this episode on behalf of my guest today, Dr. Elizabeth Ewan. This was Shashwat Baxi. As always, take care, stay safe. This was my life. My life be life.